My lifestyle was so radical and, and the violence and everything that I was into at that time. And I remember times when we didn't have anything in the house to eat. And I would take all the money that we had from me robbing something or stealing something. And I would take it and spend it on dope instead of my kids. And my drug addiction got worse and worse. And soon I started selling and, and trading in this drug, this underworld drug, and I, it just seemed to grow and grow and grow to the point that I had gotten into a fight with a guy over a drug deal. And we had like four different gunfights with each other, and finally we decided just to call this off. You stay away from me, and I'll stay away from you. One night I was at the bar drinking real heavily and doing deladas and, and uh Man, I'm just wiped out of my mind. The phone rings and the bartender comes over to me and he said, That's got that guy you've been having trouble with. And he's seen your car out front and he said he's going to come down here and kill you. And I went outside and got in my trunk and took out a Browning 12-gauge shotgun automatic and drove by this man's house and rolled down that passenger side window and killed him, shot him right in the front yard. I was so messed up, man, I tried to get away, and they caught me. I didn't get far, and they take me downtown. And I'm downtown in this questioning room, you know, and I remember them having to help me up these stairs to get there. I was so plastered. And they began to tell me who it was that got killed. And it wasn't Randy. It wasn't the guy that I was after. It was a friend of mine. The guy that... I was after, and this guy had the same hair texture, same size, same build. I was friends with this guy's whole family. He was standing in that man's front yard. In the courtroom, when the doors opened and they were coming in for to, to pick a jury and the family started in, I had to look upon the face of the mom of that man of the wife of that man, of the brother. All these people that I knew. This little boy come walking in. Little bitty fella. He trusted me. He looked at me like all the confusion, all the hurt. He didn't understand. Where was his dad? I had robbed him of his dad. He could never play football. He could never play baseball, anything, go fishing with his dad, I'd taken that from him. I never felt so ashamed. Honestly, I felt like crawling under a rock. I just wished there had been one. They gave me 30 years and I went to prison. At that time they had plea bargain negotiations and they sent me to prison with a 30 year sentence. Seems like a life sentence. You, you just 30 years, you can't comprehend that you'll ever get out when you're 25 years old. And I get to prison, one of the first things I see is a guy gets stabbed to death over calling another guy a punk. Something you do not call somebody in prison unless you're willing to die for it or kill. And he hit the ground and his lifeblood was running out of him. And guys were running up and taking his watch off and jewelry off his neck. I knew I was in a different kind of world, but you know, this world still had drugs in it. There were still drugs everywhere. 
And I remember being so ashamed because I had two little girls at home. My wife, I, I, had, I had destroyed our whole family. Not to mention the family of that man. And I would get as high as I could thinking that if I just got high enough, man, that I wouldn't have to feel that shame. I wouldn't have to feel that guilt, wear that guilt anymore, the fear that was in me from what I was going to have to face the whole time I was in prison. And every day when I woke up and I looked in the mirror, man, it was that little boy looking back at me. It was the guilt and the shame of what I'd done to my family and I couldn't get high enough. I'd try to fill that void up. You know, you've heard people talk about that void. And I'd try to put everything in there I could put in there, but I could never fill it up. Anger began to rise in me, and a hate began to rise in me. And I started just not caring about life. I remember just going in people's houses and taking in cells, in their cells inside the prison. We call them a house. And I would go inside their cell and I would take their dope away from them. And I'd had many people tell me, Brother, you've got a death wish. But I just flat out didn't care. I got to the point, man, one day we had a riot. And I, had, I, I jumped on three officers and, and hurt a couple of them pretty bad. And they sent me to McAllister. And I get over to McAllister and there's a different kind of people over there. There's people that are full of hate and anger and just like me, they'd been in a long time, and you could look at them and see they had no regard for human life whatsoever. And I remember uh, times, man, that it seemed like there was people, at one point it seemed like four people died in two weeks, were murdered on that yard as soon as I got there. So I began to make shanks even there. I learned You learn how to make a convict and learn how to make a shank out of anything, and what a shank is is just a weapon, like a homemade knife. And I would, I would stash these weapons all over the prison, so anywhere I was, I would have one close. I'd have one close at hand. In the meantime, my wife was coming up to the visiting room, sending me letters and telling me, Tony, please, you haven't destroyed your life yet. There's still hope. Call out on Jesus, man. He can change your life. And I was thinking, how could... How could a God ever forgive somebody like me? How could God ever, how could a holy God even, even listen to somebody say my name? So I didn't believe her. I, you know, no way could a God forgive somebody like me. And while I was at that prison, man, a riot happened. I'd been there about two years and a riot broke out. A very violent riot. There were several officers that were stabbed and cut up. One guy had a straight razor, and he just sliced that one officer. Man, he lived, but he cut him to pieces. Another officer got stabbed three times. I was standing very close to him. He got stabbed the first time about right here, the second time here, and the third time it hit that protective bag around his heart, we found out later. And he dropped his arms, and when he did, the guy stabbed him right in the eyeball. This officer never bothered anybody. I remember him. He, he never quit. He stayed working there. He, he was a neat guy, man, but just the hate and the violence that had happened at that time. I went and got a table leg tore off of a foosball table, man. I had a knife about that long stuck in my pants, and I went up to buy where I lived in this cell, and I just told myself I'm not getting in the ride in the involved in tearing this prison up, but nobody's coming after me.
And you see, we thought it would turn racial. We thought everybody inside would start fighting their, you know, each other. And it went on. They tore the prison up. They, they tore the control panels up. They just tore this part of the prison up. I remember they put the prisoners, in, the, the uh, hostages in, in chains and put them in uh, prisoners' clothes. And they'd walk them through there. And one guy had just, just messed all over himself, man, from the fear that he was, he was living. He just knew he was going to die. The next day, they came in and got us. And, you know, when they turned the hostages loose, they came in with the riot gear. And, and man, everybody found a place to go. And I got inside the cell, and they put me in a cell with a guy named Jimmy Maxwell. And Jimmy is just like me. He's a big knothead that both of us were friends, and we were in trouble all the time in one way or another. And the officers were so mad over what had happened to the to the guards that when they come by, there's a little bean hole that's cut out of the wall right next to the door, and then the doors have a little square square plexiglass window in them and they would come by and they'd look in that window and they'd throw that that bean hole or that that tray in the window and man i me and jimmy were so full that we'd pick them up and throw them back at them you know and for three days we done that and the third day i said brother you catch your first one i'll catch your second i started getting hungry man we went for like 11 12 days without a shower it was almost Christmas time. People were be, being shipped out all over the country because they didn't, you know, because of their involvement in the riot. And I started feeling sorry for myself. No mail going in, no mail coming out. I couldn't write my family. I couldn't tell them it was all right. This was on national uh, broadcast. They had it nationally. Everybody was talking about it all over the place. And, I remember feeling sorry for myself. Anybody ever do that? Anybody ever feel sorry for themselves? Get your hands down. Amen. I was whining. I was sniveling, man. I'm on this monk saying, God, you know, Candy's always telling me, man, that you love me and you've got a plan for me, but you never one time revealed yourself to me. You never showed me that love. You never have showed me that you're there. So right now, right here in this cell, I want you, God, to show me Show me that you're real. God, you going to show me? Nothing. And I remember telling God, that's what I thought. And I rolled over and went to sleep. In my sleep, the first thing I realized in this dream, I'm in a chair. But I'm strapped into this chair. And then the realization came to me that I'm in the electric chair cold black dark but right when I realized that man I felt those straps I had something on my head and I, uh, a light came down way way down this like a cobblestone tunnel and the light wasn't like a street light or something it was like a growing red glowing red ember that was way down and, and then something came walking up out of it it was Satan and he was everything ugly in this dream that you could imagine. Everything evil that you could imagine. And right when I realized it was Satan, a fear hit me I had never known. And Satan seen that fear. He began to laugh. 
He had ram's horns, cat eyes, club feet, and every step he took, he grew taller and taller. And the closer he got, the more real he became. I was shaking. I was trying to get loose from these straps, and I couldn't get loose, man. And he was laughing so hard. This dream was so real. When he got right here, spit was coming out of his mouth and hit me in the face. His breath was so foul. I knew they were getting ready to pull that switch, and he was going to devour me or whatever and take me to hell. Right when he was right there in my face, man, a light just illuminated both of us. A bright, glowing light. All the darkness fled. He looked up in the fear that hit his face. I thought, man, if it's scaring him, I sure don't want to look. But I got to where I could look up and it was Jesus Christ. He had his hands like this. And the light was just coming from him from all over. And he looked at Satan and he said, this one will belong to me. And Satan screamed and shot down that hall. And I woke up. Jimmy Maxwell's out in the middle of the cell. Tony Bass! What is wrong with you? Sweat's pouring off of me. I got the covers tore smooth up on the bed. He said, brother, that's got to be a good one. Let me hear it. I couldn't even talk. I just waved him off. That night I sit on that bed remembering Jesus and the compassion that he had in his eyes when he looked at me. I thought, man, I'll, I'll just lay down and go to sleep. There ain't that, man. <laughs> that devil will be back, amen. I wasn't going to sleep. The next night I was telling Jimmy about the dream. He said, that's so cool, brother. He said, I wish God would do something like that for me. I'd go to church forever. I said, like what? He said, you know, maybe even just pick that TV up and set it down. When he said that, we heard an explosion. It sounded like they were shooting at us. We thought they were. Both of us hit the ground. I grabbed a mattress, man. and Jimmy said, brother, shooting. Look at the hole in the window. And I look over at the hole in the window. It was already there. I told him, brother, that was there. He said, Tony, look at the light. And both of us look up at the light. There's looked like somebody had taken a ball ping hammer and just perfectly hit this thing dead center of that light. But it hadn't busted and fell out. It just spider webbed all through it, just little bitty pieces. And I looked at Jimmy. I said, Do you remember what you were saying? How many of y'all ever run from God? Well, some of y'all lying. Amen. How many of you have run from God? Have, I mean, actually thought it was coincidence, counted it up as that, and I'm not, you know, that ain't God. He don't love me. That's what we did. Kind of like Jonah, you know, Jonah was, man, God wanted him to go to Nineveh. You know, how many of y'all know that God has a plan and He's trying to reveal it to you before you even got saved? And He's trying to tell Jonah, i got something for you to do. I want you to go to Nineveh. i got some people that I want you to minister to. I don't like them people and I'm not going over there and doing that and I'll run where you can't find me. How many of y'all know God can find you? He gets out on the boat and they find out this is a man of God and God's mad at him, man. Let's get him out of our boat. Boy, and they chunk him. And here comes the big old fish and just swallows him up. Kind of like the Verizon Wireless commercial, you know. God's going, hey, Jonah, can you hear me now? 
Can you hear me now, Jonah? And I can hear Jonah, yeah, Lord. <laughs> I hear you now. The Lord says, well, let's look at this situation. <laughs> There's two exits out of this well's belly. <laughs> Which one do you want to come out of? <laughs> I don't think old Jonah wanted to be fish poop, do you? <laughs> Amen. And you know, that's kind of what God was telling me in all this steel and concrete. I was in the well's belly. And he, he, that was the first time he spoke to me in that manner. But you know, I'd ask him to. I'd never really heart felt asked God for anything in my whole life. I knew he was there. I just thought that when I was born that God left something out of me that he didn't leave out of good people. I was just destined to be bad and go to hell. My life was going to be a torment until I went there. But I'd never have no peace. God could never forgive me. Let me tell you something. Guilt can be an anvil around your neck if you let it. I was going from prison to prison to prison. My wife was following me everywhere telling me, Tony, please give this lifestyle up. I had gotten so violent inside the prisons that they were afraid of me. They would not leave me on one yard. Today I have people come up to me and say, Tony, I don't see that in you. And that's the greatest compliment that they can give me. Or Jesus. Because it was Him that took me out of that miry clay and set my feet on a rock. Amen. I get to a place where I'd been to McAllister twice I get to a place over at Connors, and my wife came up one day. She said, Tony, please. I've got bad news. The whole time we've been together, I've been a support for you. I've been somebody that you can lean on. And Tony, I need to lean on you now. My mama's got cancer. They told her she's going to die. Please. Please stand up. I couldn't. I walked out of the visiting room, beat two guys up over a dope deal shortly after that, and got locked up, and Candy's mother passed away. I couldn't console her. I couldn't put my arms around her. I couldn't, couldn't do nothing to help her. They sent me from there back to McAllister again, a place called H-Block. It's an underground prison. The first thing that when you walk down to H-Block, you can feel the hate. It's a presence. The, the depression. The... Anger, the frustration, everything. You can feel the evil down there. And I walked into a cell, and the cell that they put me in, I'd been to H-Block before. My wife had to come up there and tell me that my father had died. Something that you'd think would change a man, but it didn't change me. I loved my dad. But I walked in this cell, and they'd let somebody go in there with these colored pencils, and this guy had drawn demons on every wall. One wall had a naked lady that was pregnant and a demon climbing out of her belly. Grain graffiti, UAB, Universal Aryan Brotherhood, uh, Crips, Bloods, everything that you could think of. Gang graffiti written all over these walls. My wife was writing me letters, but they had gotten, she usually always wrote two letters. I mean, two pages. 
And her letters had gotten down to where they were like a paragraph. The loss of her mom was devastating to her. I knew that. My kids had started getting a little ornery and wild and out of hand. And her husband was at the McAllister on H block again. And she had just lost her mom. At the end of every letter, though, they would be kind of incoherent. And at the end, they would say, Tony, please give your heart to Jesus. I was on lockup for 140 days in the intercom. They came on and they said, Tony, you've got a visit. And I go up to visit and I sit down and I look in there and, and it's my wife. She's, but it doesn't look like her. She, the loss of her mom had taken its toll on her. She had lost more weight. She was so skinny with skin and bones. Her eyes were sunk back in her head. And it terrified me. And I picked that phone up and started lying. I said, honey, I'll change. I'll, I'll be better. I won't do no more dope. I, anything I could lie to her and tell her it was okay, you know. And she just cried. Tears just run down her eyes. The whole visit. Everything I said, it was, just didn't help. It. She just cried. She got up to leave and with her little hands shaking. She said, Tony, please, give your heart to Jesus. Please, Tony. I need you to. She hung that phone up and she left. And I was terrified she'd have a wreck going home. Went back down to my cell and there was a letter there from my kids. And the letter said, Daddy, please, do something. Mama Kenny. She can't sleep. All she does is cry. Daddy, we're afraid she's going to die. Please do something. And I looked around at these four great walls, this prison I had built for myself, and I never felt so helpless, so alone in my whole life. That night I tried to go to sleep, and everywhere I looked, a demon was looking back at me. And I rolled over and looked at the ceiling. And something hit me, just like a rock. That's something I'd heard in the, in the churches when I was a kid or something, that Jesus was the name above all names. And so I rolled that mattress up. And the reason nobody could write nothing on the ceiling is because it was way up there. And I got this little short stubby pencil and I climbed up on top of that mattress and, and I wrote the name of Jesus on that ceiling. Crip, blood, everything else was all over these walls, but Jesus was the name above every name. Demons, fear, everything. Jesus' name was above. I laid down and I looked at that name for a long time. And I thought of who he was. I thought of that dream. And I said, Lord, I know that I don't even deserve to call your name out. I know I'm filthy. But my wife has loved you her whole life. Her whole life, God, she's called you out to me. She's always held you up. Please help her. And I said, Amen. And I finally got to sleep that night. And the next morning, the guy next door had been on methamphetamine for, for a long time. I was selling this stuff for him. And, you know, he was over there just freaking out. And he, he started kicking that door and screaming that the UAB had sent over a contract on him and I was supposed to accept that contract and kill him. Big lie. But he had really made himself believe it in this paranoia. 
And he's kicking that door, and for 30 minutes he kicked that door. And let me tell you, man, I wasn't going to kill him, but 30 minutes of him kicking that door, I wanted to. Amen. And the officer came down there and said, Tony, Matt, we got a place for you. And they shackled me up, and I got my stuff, you know, you, everything you own, you own in a little old bitty bag, you know. And, and they shackle you through this bean hole that's down here this time, you know. And, and I'm telling them, just what do you think you're going to do to me? I'm on H-Block. You know, how far down do you want me to go? I'm as low as you can get me. They take me to a cell, and the cell door opens. It's on, it's on death row. The cell door opens, and the first thing I see in that cell is a picture of Jesus Christ. How many of y'all know that God heard that prayer the night before? He says, I've got help for you. I've got help for you, wife. One last chance for you, Tony. I could just, you know, I looked in there and I seen that picture of Jesus. And then I seen this convict. Lips touching both ears. He's just grinning. He said, you're Tony Mack, ain't you? I said, oh, God. He said, it's not by mistake that you were put in this cell. It's divine appointment. And he said, your family needs you right now more than they ever have. And you need to be stand up and be the man of God that they need you to be. I said, man, you don't understand. You don't understand nothing about me. God can never save somebody like me. He said, he saved me, brother. And if he saved me, he can save anybody. He began to share his life with me. Man. I felt like an angel. This guy had been on death row, had gotten off death row, was doing life without. Had been on H. Brock since it opened something. Six years he had been in this hole. Lips touching both ears. Just glowing. For three years he hammers me with, or three days he hammers me with Scripture. Finally he gets to a Scripture that hit something inside of me. Acts 16.31 you guys know this story. This is where Paul and Silas, man, were preaching and they cast this evil spirit out of this woman. And let me tell you something, man. You can do about anything to somebody, but don't take their money. Amen. And they beat him down. I'm not talking to you, Charlie. Amen. They beat him down. They just beat him, man. And, and both of them and threw him in the inner part of the prisons. I could relate to that, man. I was in a place called H Rock in Oklahoma. That's the inner part of the prison. And here they are beaten, blood dripping off of them. They're beaten bad. And, you know, I can't, I don't know if they're on the wall or where they're at, but they're chained up. The word says they're chained up. And I can just hear Paul, hey, hey Silas. Silas over here. Oh, yeah. Paul over here. Oh, let's sing. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> oh! We don't know what they sung. Maybe it was this little light of mine. But it said the prisons and the other cells were listening. The words, I love this part. It says that earth began to quake and the doors flew open. The chains came off. Whoa, I like that. And then he gets to the scripture, Acts 16.31. You know, the guard came in. He seen them gone, was going to kill himself. Paul and Silas said, don't hurt yourself, we're here. He's seen the hand of God. 
Let me tell you something. If I had been Paul, I'd have probably run over that guard. I'd have probably stuck him on the way out. Amen. I'd have thought Jesus was opening the door for me to get away. But you see, Paul seen the need. So many times we don't see the need. We get excited about something and we don't see the need. We see our own wants, our own desires. Paul seen the needs of this guard. That guard said, what can I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And your house. I said, Michael, you mean that if I just receive God in my heart that my kids will be saved? Who started messing up, you know? And, and he said, brother, it's not a promise for me. It's a promise from God. I said, my wife, she'll get healed. She'll be okay. And he said, brother, just stand on that word. Man, I laid down that night for the first time. God, I'm so dirty. I'm so filthy. I've done so much wrong. Could you really forgive me? He said, I'll cast your sins as far away as the east is from the west. This scripture was just coming back to me. I said, but God, do you really love me? He said, I knew your name on the cross, Tony. I said, but God, I've never been able to quit doing dope. I've tried everything. I went to every class, everything I could do. I've never been able to quit. He said, you never tried me. I said, God, what about my friends? What do they think? What about me? I went to sleep that night, man. Slept a good night's sleep. Woke up the next morning. Michael's over there making these roses. Made them out of toilet paper. I don't know what all he put in them things, but they look real. Lips still touching both ears. Amen. Just glowing. That peace had to come from God. It had to be from Him. Right then at that moment, I wanted Jesus in my heart more than I've ever wanted anything. Dope, anything. More than freedom, more than anything. Right then, I wanted Jesus in my heart. I said, Michael. He dropped that rose. He heard the urgency of my voice and he turned around. I said, I want to know the Jesus that set you free. He grabbed me by the hands and he led me through the sinner's prayer. And let me tell you something. I felt the chains falling off of me like yesterday's news. Guilt, hate, shame, everything, fear just hit the ground. And agape love, Charlie, just started flowing into me, man. Tears just started running down my face. I was so happy. I'd never felt this peace. I've got to tell somebody. My cell partner already knows. I look up and here comes this big old officer down the run. I kick the door. Hey, I'm saved. He says, oh, my God. He took off. I hear him down the run telling people down there, something's wrong with Tony Mack. How many of y'all know for the first time in my life, everything was right with Tony Mack? I had to call somebody else. It's December the 11th, 1996. I call my wife, man, and she's gone. I call my mom. Mom answers the phone. I said, Mom... Bless her heart, man. She had been praying for this for a long time and hoping for this. When I was a little boy, I used to pick my mom flowers and bring them to her and open the door. And I didn't care who watched. I just wanted to love her, you know. And to see your son go from that kind of boy into the drug addiction and everything, man, it was so devastating for her. And then to get the call that your son had taken somebody's life. 
And then to find out that in prison that he had become just as violent as the most violent in there. And here she's got this call. And, and I said, Mama, boy, do I got a present for you, Christmas present. She said, what have you done now? I said, no, Mama, you don't understand. Jesus is living in my heart. Mama, I'm saved. He set me free. I don't have to go to hell, Mom. I've got a mansion. I'm free, Mom. 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 I hear her on the other end of the phone. Well, that got me. The whole time on the phone, all we did was cry. And this guy, been hearing what a tough guy I've been for 11 years, and here I am on this phone. I look back there at him, and he's back there. God shows up and just nails everybody. Amen? He began to read the Scripture in me, and Scripture just came alive, man. I told myself, man, I'm going to believe no matter what. Oh, devil, he'll try to tell you that's a lie. You have to stand up. You have to tell him you're a liar, devil. God's Word is true. It's a lamp unto my soul. It's a light for my feet. He can take me through this dark world if I just trust in Him and hold His Word dear and put it in my heart. I started reading. I, started, I thought this anointing was Michael's. So I write a letter. Man, I don't want off here until you let Michael off. They come on with that intercom. They said, you sure about this? They wasn't used to getting a letter like that. Everybody wanted off H-Block. Amen. I said, you know, I've never known this kind of peace. I don't want to off here until you let Michael off. One month later, we prayed. One month later, they come over at the intercom and said, we don't know how you guys did it, but pack your stuff. They moved Michael, still in McAllister, but it's not in this underground prison anymore. It's, they moved him to a place called F. Cell House. They moved me to a place called Seaside. Man, I was scared. I didn't want to get away from Michael. I'd never had this peace, this joy. I get down to Seaside, C1, and it's the, it's a, the, it's like the ghetto of the prisons inside the prison. And I get down here in the cell open and I smelt this cell before I walk into it. I get in there, there's a guy on the top bunker looking at me. He's got hair like this, man. He did not own a bar of soap, toothbrush, toothpaste, comb. Anything that you would clean yourself. No kind of cleaning supplies. This room was nasty. There was trash stuffed under the bunk, under the, under the desk, and his sheets were almost black. Nicotine stains where you, could, where you could see them dripping from the humidity down the wall. Toilet stool was right there. Man, I don't want to look. But I looked, and it was green. It had green moss all around it, and green moss in it. And I flushed it, and it just done the wave, you know. <laughs> How many of y'all know every time God does something powerful in your life, the Satan's right there to try to steal it? Some of you think you're so holy that he leaves you alone. Let me tell you something. He didn't leave Jesus alone. What makes you think he's going to leave you alone? And he was right there on my shoulder telling me, you ain't saved. Who do you think you are? That was Michael's. That ain't you. The same very thing that I was afraid. Guess what he was telling me? That was Michael's anointing. That ain't yours. You're not saved, man. I was so devastated, I just sit down on that bottom bunk and looked at this nasty cell. 
Found out later this guy hadn't been out of this cell in four months. Four months he's lived in that cell, no shower, no nothing. That night I turned the light off and the room began to move, man. I got back up and turned the light on. I'm stepping on something on the floor and I turned the light on as cockroaches. I had never seen this many cockroaches in one place in my entire life. I look all around. It was needless to work to to try to move them out or kill them or anything. there's too many of them. I look up at him and he's got his mouth open. They're just crawling on him, man. I pull my mattress out. you got two brackets that hold your bunk against the wall and I pull my mattress out all night long. I'm flipping them off of me, getting madder and madder and madder. And I'm telling God, God, I know you were there. I know, I know, God, that you saved me. I remembered something that when I was little, the next day, you know, I'm sitting on this bunk in the next morning, and I remembered something that my mom and all the women in my life has always told me. Cleanness is next to godliness. Amen? It ain't in the Bible, is it, Charlie? But I can understand how God's a clean God. And if I was Him, I wouldn't want to come in this nasty cell either. Amen? So I tell the run man, hey, I need some cleaning supplies. He said, Tony Mack, I knew you was going to want them. I'll get them right to you, man. About that time, here come the officers around. Hey, it's time to shower. Oh, boy, you know, he said, but we ain't got no cold hot water. It's just cold water. I looked up at him. I said, hey, today's your lucky day. I got soap. I got everything, shampoo, everything. I ain't taking no shower. I said, yeah, you're going to take one in that, in that shower in that green toilet stool, but you're fixing to take a shower. He looks up at me. He said, okay. <laughs> He bails out and he goes to the shower, man. I get my shower. He comes back and, and he looks like a people, man. He cleaned up for, while he was gone, I took him black sheets off, you know, and, and you know, I'm still empty inside though. I remember something that Michael told me. He said, Tony, if you ever get where you feel like God doesn't hear you or you don't know how to break through, sing praises to him. Even when you don't feel like it, mister, I didn't feel like it. I got to trying to remember a praise song, you know, something that God would accept. And, and I remembered something that my mom had sung to me when I was a little boy. And it goes, Oh, how I love Jesus. You all know the song. And I've got this, this bucket, man, and it's got soap in it, man, and I've got my scrub brush, and, and I know I've got to start singing, so... Oh... How I love Jesus. But you know, God seen my heart. And He just reached down and He gave me a touch. That agape love. He didn't care what I'd done. It didn't matter where I was going. No matter where they put me, my God was going to be there. And my song got sweet. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because He first loved me. I started shouting. Oh, how I love Jesus. I look up there at my cell partner, he's in a little ball. I'm having me a ball in here, man. I got soap on everything, amen. Looking to be knowing the ugliest man in captivity is looking through there at me. 
I loved this guy. He was a neat guy, man. He had a compassionate heart. Tears were running down his eyes. He said, Tony Mack, it's real, ain't it? I said, I've never felt nothing more real, brother. He said, I brought you some dope. But you're not going to take it, are you? I said, no, sir. He said, well, take it and sell it and get you some canteen or something. I said, I can't do that. I'd be just as wrong as if I did it. Brother, I can't. I said, if you really want to give it here, I'll put it in that now silver toilet stool. Amen. Tears still running down his eyes. He said, man, I've got to go tell somebody. He went and began to spread the word that Tony Mack had found Jesus. And the tough guys, the hardcore guys that were on the other units, the officers started bringing them to my cell. And through this little bean hole, we were grabbing hands. And I was praying for their mamas, for their children. Some of them had mamas that were dying. And they'd come back to me and tell me that and God healed her. He healed her, Tony. I didn't know how to pray. I just... Poured my heart out to God. Men were coming to my bean hole and I was able to lead them to the Lord right there through that bean hole. My cell partner probably could have stand getting saved. I'd read to him every night from the Bible. But he couldn't stand him three showers a week. I come home one day and he'd moved off. Amen. They moved someone in else with me and I led him to the Lord. A little time passed and uh, two, off, two guys got stabbed severely. One on the unit I was on and one on the other unit got beaten up real bad and stabbed. We went for a couple of weeks. They had us locked down. No showers, nothing. We wasn't getting out of the cells. And they come down there to take my cell partner to medical, man. And when they did, I put my foot in the door. Grabbed my sh- towel and my little officer says, What are you doing? I said, I'm going to take a shower and you're too little to be in the way. And so he got out of the way, and I went and took a shower and come back, and I said, God, did I do that without sinning? He said, we got some work to do with you. Amen. <laughs> they brought my cell partner back and told me, Prut wants you. Prut was a unit manager down the hall, man, and me and him had a bad pass. So I went down there, man, and I get down there in the office, and, and Mr. Prut tells me, he says, Tony, when I seen your name on the list, you were coming from H-Block. He said, I was going to move you. I wasn't going to let you come to my unit. I was going to send you back. And something happened and you slipped through. How many of y'all know what happened? Amen. He said, I've been hearing about men coming to your cell, Tony, and being saved. I've been hearing about officers looking through your door and you reading the Bible all hours of the night. I've been hearing about you smiling instead of gritting your teeth. He said, I want to put you in that job over on, on two quad. He said, they've stabbed or hurt everybody we put over there. But He said, I think you could straighten it out. I said, can my cell partner go? He said, yeah. I get over there and I'm out telling everybody, they've messed up now, Charlie. I can tell everyone about Jesus, amen. And I'm feeding them and I'm telling them about the Lord, you know. And that night I was in my cell and I'm thanking God for the job and Everything, my wife's coming to visit, smiling. Now she's got lips touching both ears, amen. And I'm thanking the Lord for everything. And he said, son, look where you're at. I said, yeah, God, you got me a job. You got me over here on this quad. Well, you're awesome. He said, son, look where you're at. And I stopped talking. and, And I looked at the door and I got up and I went to the door and I looked out the door and I looked up at the light. 
I'm in the exact same cell where 10 years earlier I'd said, God, show me you're real. And I had the dream. He's such a wonderful God. I remember in a visiting room, I got out of McAllister. I was at a, another prison and I had got to lead so many men to the Lord. I just, God would just come out. That agape love. We got news that my uncle had contracted a lung disease and was dying. He made his way to the visiting room. They wouldn't let him bring the oxygen in for flammable reasons and that dangerous and they but they let him come in and he was so frail and so small he was an awesome uncle me and him were so tight nobody had ever been able to minister to him and I went down there and I seen him and I wasn't used to seeing him like that he would always been a big powerful man and I opened my mouth and began to speak his son was with him and everything that came out of my mouth was Jesus Everything was just pouring out God's love. He said, Tommy, would you pray for me? And I started praying for healing, and in my spirit, God shouted, Salvation. And I stopped and I opened my eyes and I said, Uncle Jimmy, do you need salvation? He said, I want to know the Jesus that changed you, Tommy, with everything in my heart. And I grabbed him by the hands. I led him through the sinner's prayer. And we were weeping and we were crying. And when we finished, we were just hugging each other, crying. And Uncle Jimmy said, they're going to think we're sissies. I said, they can't whoop us, Uncle Jimmy. And I looked around. And all these hardcore, tough convicts that were all around us and their families were weeping and crying. He went home to be with the father two months later. He's up there waiting for me. God has used me so many times. Shabon's dad got saved right here in this church. Just had a short time to live after that. He's up there waiting, sweetheart. He's up there waiting. And God is so good. He's so good. I do the prison ministry now, and I'm never, ever happier than when I'm doing something for God. That's when I come alive. When they open the door and let me in, that's when I come alive. And I'm always afraid I'm going to mess something up. But He never lets me, amen? And even if I do, He's got a plan B, don't He, Charlie? There was a little boy that had a candle. Had four candles. Had them in a room. They burnt brightly. The first candle was peace. It began to flicker and it spoke. It said, you know, nobody fights for me anymore. People let go of me so easily. And it flickered and went out. Next candle was faith. People have stopped reading God's word, word and, and building me up. Nobody holds on to me no more and it flickered and it went out. 
The next candle was love, and it said, you know, people used to have me. They would wake up with me. They would hold me and love, hold me dear, and I would keep them happy, but nobody holds on to me anymore. And it flickered, and it went out. And the little boy came into the room and seen them out, and it says, he said, you were supposed to burn forever. You were never supposed to burn out. And the little candle hope spoke. I said, don't cry. As long as you have me, pick me up. Hold me to the others. We'll bring them back to life. Have you lost hope? I don't think so. God's here. He's wanting to meet you where you're at. Whatever needs you have, don't hold back today. Please, give God your heart. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.